0: So let me tell you a story to begin. I read this this week in a blog by a guy named Tom Rainer, who's a church planning strategist and consultant, and he's writing about the way non-Christian people, people that don't follow Jesus, oftentimes feel about Christians, about Jesus followers. That might be an interesting question for you to consider. What do the people in your life who don't follow Jesus think about you as a follower of Jesus, if you are a Christian? Here's one of the stories that Rainer, who wrote this blog, was told. This is by a young lady who wrote this. As a mother of young children, I joined the homeschooling environment when we decided to homeschool our kids, and we found ourselves surrounded by Christians. Of course, the kids would become friends, and we moms would chat while they played. And without a single exception, this acquaintanceship only progressed to the point that I had to make it clear that no, I did not want to accept Jesus as my Savior, and no, I would not be attending their church. Then the Christians never called again, and I was left to explain to my sad children why their new friends wouldn't be playing with them anymore. When my son was just six, the boys down the street told him he was not allowed to play with them because he wasn't a Christian. I went down to see what was going on, and I confirmed that What my son had reported was indeed what they had said. And the mother of one was right out in the front yard, 25 feet from me, pretending to be very focused on trimming some plants, and she never said a word. Finally, the six-year-old girl across the street told my kids, ages seven and nine, that if they weren't Christians, they were going to hell. She certainly learned the, quote, good news. And you Christians wonder why we non-Christians avoid you. Hint, it's not because we're intimidated by your awesomeness and are just sitting here pining for you, wishing you would like us. We already know that you don't. Now, when I first read that, I got a little defensive. I wonder if that's how you feel when you first hear it. It's an important thing, however, for us to hear what oftentimes people in our lives, people in our neighborhoods, people in our city that don't believe the gospel, that don't follow Jesus, think about us as Christians. And the question I want to ask of us tonight is this. Do we, as Christians, do we as a church have a responsibility to engage and interact with people in our lives who might feel this way about Christianity? The answer undoubtedly, by the way, is yes. We do have a responsibility to engage with a world that oftentimes disagrees with us, that oftentimes doesn't understand us, and frankly that oftentimes we don't even pretend to care about at all as Christians. Um, You know, we have that responsibility because the Bible, from beginning to end, really is the story about a God who pursues with love a people who are lost, a people who are perishing, a people who have turned away from him. And God calls his people, whom he has redeemed by his grace, that we call the church, he calls his church to follow him in his mission. God's mission is to seek and to save those who are lost. And our mission is to join him in that. And because our mission is to join God in that mission, we can have confidence. We can have hope. We can have a willingness to interact with anyone and everyone, even if they don't agree with us about a single thing regarding Christianity, because we know that God, God himself is on a mission to seek and to save people. Now... One way to think about that is to think about it like this. The church, as Harvey Kahn, a theologian, has put it, the church is the only institution on the face of the earth that exists for the sake of its non-members. It's the only institution on the the face of the earth that exists for the sake of its non-members. What I want us to think about tonight as we think about Acts 17, and as we think about what it means to be a missional church, is this idea that the church primarily is not a place that people go to. The church is rather a people who go as they are following our God who is already on a mission to redeem this lost and dying world. That's what it means to be a missional church. It means to, to follow God in the mission that he himself has to renew this world and to bring people back to him Through faith in Jesus. That is something we are strongly and stridently committed to together as a church. And it's what we want to talk about tonight, just for a few minutes. And I've got five points, which I think is a new record for Christ Church. Yay me. Five points. Don't get scared. We're going to go fast, relatively fast. Five points as we think about what it means to be a church who joins in God's mission what it means to be a missional church, but the main idea is simply this. The gospel sends us out into the mission of God. The gospel, in its essence, sends us out into the mission of God. Okay, five things, starting in Acts 17, jumping around a little, about what it means to be a missional church. First, a missional church preaches the gospel. Look at what Paul says, Acts 17. He's in Athens waiting for his ministerial missionary colleagues to uh, meet him there so they can continue on their missionary journey. And while he's there, he's walking around, and he begins talking to people. And these people take him to the sort of the meeting place, the Areopagus of the philosophers of ancient Athens. And the reason they take him, look there in verse 18, is because he was a preacher of what? Foreign is what they is what they called it, but really what he was preaching is Jesus and the resurrection. See that there? Paul came to Athens, and what he did was talk about Jesus. Now, we've talked about this as a church already. Our primary, foundational, core identifying principle and value is the idea that the gospel changes everything. It has the power to reshape, reform, and renew our lives individually, our life together in this entire universe. That is what Paul is all about. He proclaims Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 18 says that very clearly. So they take him to the Areopagus, and then he preaches this really short sermon. It's probably just a summary of his sermon that Luke, who wrote Acts, has recorded for us. But notice again, they're in verse 31 of 17. He talks about the gospel. He says, God has called all people to repent. Because he's going to come and judge the world by a man whom he has appointed. And he's proven this by what? Raising him from the dead. The death and the resurrection of Jesus are central. They are pivotal. They are essential to Paul's mission. They are essential to the whole idea and fabric of the Christian scriptures. And they are essential to our life together as a church. The first thing it means to be a missional church is to be a church that preaches the gospel. All the other things we're going to talk about here in just a minute are important. But we can do all of those other things, and they're not going to matter at all if we are not first and foremost a church that talks about, teaches about, prays about, thinks about, acts about, proclaiming and believing the message of Jesus, the gospel. We've talked about that a lot in our young life together, and we will continue to talk about it. The message of the gospel is powerful enough to change everything. A missional church is a church that embraces that truth. The gospel is that Jesus in his death on the cross forgives us of all of our sin, that we are completely wiped clean because Jesus takes God's just punishment upon himself that we deserve for our sin. And then in Jesus being raised from the dead, we are assured that through faith in him, we receive new life, both into eternity and also now. Jesus died and was raised so that we can be forgiven. And we simply receive that by faith. We don't have to work to earn God's favor. Jesus has earned God's favor for us in his death and in his resurrection. We merely trust that Jesus has done all that is required for you to have renewal, for you to be brought back again to God. That is the gospel. It's, it's news about what's happened to Jesus, and it's good news because when you believe that it happened, when you believe that God sent Jesus because he loves you to die for you, you experience forgiveness. You are granted a righteous status before God. Your whole view of the world, your whole view of yourself, your whole view of God is radically altered. A missional church is a church that preaches the gospel. Second, a missional church confronts cultural idols. A missional church confronts cultural idols. Back in Acts 17, Paul says, or Luke says, Paul's waiting for his buddies at Athens, and his spirit was provoked. Another way to translate that, angered. It's not too strong of a translation. His spirit was provoked within him. Why? Because he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, I've been to Athens. I went there a number of years ago, and still today, 2,000 years after Paul experienced life there, there are remnants of statues of stone and marble and even wood all over that ancient city that the ancients used to worship and bow down to and pray to, hoping that the gods would bless them. Now, Paul, 2,000 years ago, is walking around this city, and he's seeing all of these idols, even one that says this idol is dedicated to an unknown god, and he gets, frankly, angry. And that's what causes him to begin to speak to the philosophers and to the Stoics and to the Epicureans. A missional church, a church that is following God and his mission, is a church that confronts the idols of a culture. Now, in our culture today, most of us, I'm guessing, no longer bow down before wooden and stone statues and beg for the gods to send rain or to send money. <laughs> but, but our culture is still following the behest of one false god after another every day. You see, an idol is not necessarily a literal, physical statue of a god. An idol is is anything that you long for in your heart more than anything else. And our culture today has any number of idols that dominate the conversation that goes on in our society. I wonder what idols tempt you to worship. One way to answer that question is to ask yourself, what would I die if I, what would I, why, I'm messing this one up. If I lost X, I would die and not be able to go on. (laughs) Fill in the blank. If I only had blank, then I would finally be happy and content. Whatever it is you fill in the blank with in your life to answer that question is very likely an idol in your heart. And a missional church exists to confront the idols that captivate and hold our culture hostage. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. And the reason that's so important is because oftentimes we as Christians merely want to change people's external behaviors. We'll say, please stop doing this and start doing this and you're good to go. But you see, that is, that is not going nearly deep enough in looking for a solution to the human problem. The human problem, the heart of the human problem, is the problem of the human heart. Our heart is, as Calvin has said, a a continual maker of idols, of false gods. And the gospel alone is what has the power to take our hearts and transfer our heart's allegiance from these false gods that we crave to the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jesus Christ. Maybe the idol that we're facing today Above all else is the idol of materialism. If only I had X amount of money in my bank account, I would finally be content. Maybe the idol that we're all facing is, is the idol of relation, relational fulfillment. If I only would finally meet that special someone and they would sweep me off of my feet, then everything would be fine with me. Or... If the person that I thought was going to sweep me off my feet that I happen to live with now finally would actually do it, then everything would be okay with me. Maybe the idol of our heart is just individualism. If everyone would just sort of leave me alone and let me do what I want to do, when I want to do it, I would be fine. We all have our idols. We all have things in our culture that we tend to bow down to in worship. A missional church calls people. Out of the worship of idols, which is vain, which is fleeting, which is only going to lead to futility, and calls them to the only worship that will satisfy the human heart. The worship of the living and true God. The God of the Bible. The God that gives us grace. The God that has revealed himself to us in Scripture. A missional church is a church that preaches the gospel, first. Second, a church that confronts cultural idols is a missional church. Third, a missional church contextualizes big word a missional church contextualizes what do I mean by that mainly what I mean when I say a missional church is a church that contextualizes is I mean that a missional church preaches the gospel and confronts cultural idols and seeks to love people in a way and with a method and using language that the people to whom it's ministering will understand think about this Think about maybe if you've been in church for a while, you've probably known someone that was called to the foreign mission field to do ministry work. Say you know someone that was called to do foreign mission work in Japan or in Africa or in Eastern Europe. Now, almost always when an American is called to a foreign mission work, what they spend the first year or two years doing is what? Learning the language, learning the culture, understanding how to how to literally speak the language of the people they're going to minister to. They, they begin to understand the context to which they are ministering. And really, that's exactly what Paul is doing here in Athens, too. Notice what he does when he's preaching to these people in the midst of the Areopagus. He quotes in verse 28, two pagan Greek poets People that the Greek philosophers that were listening to Paul would have clearly, definitely been familiar with. And he takes their language, he takes something they would understand, he uses, so to speak, an illustration that makes sense to them, and he applies that context, that language, that illustration, to his proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, if you read through Acts, and you see in other sections of the book, like in Acts 14, when Paul's preaching to a bunch of Jewish people, He doesn't quote pagan Greek poets. He talks about the law of Moses, right? Because that's their language. That's what they're familiar with. That's what they're going to understand. To be a church that contextualizes simply means that we work to understand how best to proclaim the unchanging gospel to a constantly changing culture. It means that we work hard to listen to the things that the people in our city are up to, the, the music they listen to, the kinds of clothes that they wear, they wear the, the sorts of struggles that they face, the conversations that are going on in the neighborhood. We want to understand our context. And the gospel doesn't change, but the way we interact with people about the gospel does change based on what those people are going through. And that's a very, really a very simple concept, but it's been amazing how naive the church has often been in applying it. We tend to think that, quote, church should look and be the exact same, no matter if you're in urban Detroit, suburban San Antonio, or northern California. Now, the gospel is the same. The gospel has the power to change, but three churches in those three places would and should look different. The dress is going to be different. The music is going to be different. The conversations are going to be different because the people are living in different places and dealing with different issues. That's what it means to be a church that contextualizes. It's very, very important. And that's something that you can, as a part of Christ Church, help us in. Especially those of you that have lived here for many years. You know better than most what are the particular struggles the particular idols, the particular needs of the people of suburban San Antonio, Texas in the year 2014? What are the ways that we can present ourselves and, so to speak, clothe ourselves so that the gospel will be more commendable and more beautiful to those that so desperately need to hear it? Those are the sorts of things that a missional church thinks hard about. And so I want you to know that this is something we strive for at Christchurch. Uh, and we're, we're not there yet. We want to get there. I want you to know that, that nothing. we're not trying to do anything just because that's the way we've always done it or because, um, because that's just sort of uh, haphazardly how it came together. We want to intentionally think about how we can both be faithful to what the Scriptures call the church to be and contextualize our message in a way where people in our city are going to understand it. That affects the way we dress when we come to church. It affects the kind of music we play when we come to church. It affects the language and the words that I use as I preach. Everything is affected by the idea that we are to to take the gospel, which is not changing, to a culture that's always changing. It requires wisdom. It requires listening. It requires humility. But a missional church is a church that... Contextualizes, that cares enough about the people of the city to work hard to speak in a way that they're going to understand. Fourth, a missional church is a countercultural community. A missional church is a countercultural community. And I'm going to use a different text from Acts for this one. Uh, before Paul gets to Athens, Luke is writing about the early church. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, he sort of lays out the early life of the church. It's like a summary paragraph. He talks about how the believers in that day hung out together. They studied, devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, the Bible, to fellowship, to communion, to prayer and all sorts of amazing things were happening, and all those who believed together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and distributing to the poor. This is what church life looked like. They were a community of believers in ancient Jerusalem. And then in verse 47, Luke adds something very interesting. As the church was living together as a community, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, I think, one thing we can take from just those few verses in Acts 2 is this, the nature of our life together as God's people is in itself a witness to the truth of the gospel. Leslie Newbegin is an old theologian and missionary that said that the church is the hermeneutic of the gospel. Hermeneutics is the a, a study, the interpretation of Scripture. And what he meant by that is that people are going to interpret whether or not Christianity is true and valid largely by how they experience our community. And so the church is then called to be a countercultural community, not in like a 1960s hippie sense. um, But in the sense that the way we are living life together is, is compelling and kind of strange and interesting enough that people are more interested in hearing about what we believe you see, when, when a community, let's think about this practically, when a community of Christians is together and they are acting in a radically generous way with one another, when they are giving both money and time and resources to help one another out and to help out other people in their city, that is, this might this shouldn't surprise you, that, that, that is really weird. That's really extraordinary. It's really unusual to give away money and time for the sake of other people and not expect anything in return. It's it's in its essence communicating something distinct and special about what's happening here. It's missional. Another example, when a community of people in a church refuse to, to speak ill of one another when those people are not present, when they don't gossip, about one another and slander one another and make fun of one another when those people aren't there, but rather they speak respectfully and kindly and lovingly about others, even when they're there and even when they're not there. That is, in itself, a radically countercultural act that people are going to take notice of. When a church is loving one another so well that we know deeply about what's going on in one another's lives that we're praying about very specific, very real needs with our friends together as a church. That is, in itself, radically countercultural. Most people don't have friends where they can tell them everything going on in their life, where they can share their their darkest fears, where they can share their deepest worries and know that they're going to be treated with with love and with respect. That, in itself, is deeply countercultural. You see, these sorts of normal Christian practices... Being the church together is a way by which God draws people to himself. You see, God could just snap his finger and everyone that he wants to be saved would be saved. He could do it that way. But he, he in his providence, decides to use messy, broken people like us together to show how good he is, to show how great he is. It's as if he's saying, if God can take a group of people like us and form us together so that we love each other and care for each other and give of ourselves for each other and, and pray for each other, then he, there really is something special to this Christianity thing. See, a, a missional church is a church whose very community is itself a witness to the truth of the gospel. So four things so far. A missional church preaches the gospel, Right. A missional church confronts cultural cultural idols. A missional church is contextual, and a missional church is countercultural in its community. Last thing, if I can remember it, I'm not used to five points. Ah, oh, yeah. A missional church welcomes and expects skeptics. Uh, lots of places in the Bible we could turn to think about that. Uh, one good one, I think, is Colossians, a letter of the apostle Paul, <clears throat> chapter four, verses five and six. Paul says this: conduct Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Interesting verse, but what I think is important is that what's assumed there is that we're going to have relationships with, quote, outsiders, people who don't yet follow Jesus. Paul actually assumes that in many places. Another example is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when he's writing about what Christians should do in their worship service. And he's talking about speaking in tongues and prophecy. And this is not a sermon on those issues, nor will we preach one soon. But one day when I get enough courage, um, we'll preach on that. But the point for our purposes tonight is that Paul's saying, when you speak in tongues without an interpreter and you prophesy, the people in your worship service that aren't Christians aren't going to have a clue what's going on. So don't do it. And if you do do it, make sure it's done decently and in order. In other words, Paul is assuming... In his letter to the churches, the presence in our lives of people who don't follow Jesus, of people who are skeptical about Christianity, of people who doubt, of people who may vehemently disagree with us. And so to be a church that is following God and his mission, we want to commit ourselves to being a church that, as I've put it before, has no closed doors. Every avenue of our church is an open door for people who do not believe Jesus is the Lord, who are not Christians, who are not following him, who are not convinced to come and interact with us. Another way I think that is well put is this. Our church will not, does not have a, a missions department or an evangelism department. Everything we do is missional. Everything we do is is tinged and seasoned with evangelism. Everything, the worship service, our small groups, hanging out together, one-on-one time, is a place where we invite, welcome, and even expect those who aren't in agreement with us when it comes to Jesus. May we be a place where someone who doesn't agree is welcomed and not shouted down, may we be a place where we can receive important questions from someone who is not yet a follower of Jesus and discuss those things with them wisely and humbly. May we be a place where we feel comfortable inviting our family and our friends and our neighbors who don't know Jesus, knowing that we're not going to unnecessarily offend them. May we be a church that is following God and His mission by always expecting people to be in our atmosphere, swimming in the waters of Christ church, who aren't quite there yet. That's, that's what it means. That's what it means to be a church that is on mission. Maybe to summarize everything I'm trying to say to you, everything that I believe God has called us to be and that we want to strive for, is that we want to be a place that very simply and very essentially and very bluntly follows Jesus when he says, I did not come for the righteous, but I came to seek and to save those who are lost. We want to be a church that exists for those who are not yet here. Christ's church does not exist for you. Fundamentally and primarily, it exists for the glory of God. And secondarily, it exists for those who are perishing in hopelessness and sin and rebellion. Christ Church is to be a place. It's to be a place where people who are not yet a part of us are welcome to come and experience what it means to follow Jesus as a community together. And guess what? That is going to require. That is going to require the grace of God if it's going to happen here. But Thankfully, God is exceedingly gracious. May we be a church that relies on God's grace as we follow him in his mission. Let's pray.